This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 500. What happens when you die? It's the, it's the biggest question we can, we can possibly ask. Death defines us whether we want it to or not. It's the ultimate destination that we all have. What will be like in that moment when we step through that gate and we don't really know until it happens. Something called the pastor method teaches how to harness marketing wisdom to get honest about what you really want from life and craft better beliefs and plans to help you start living life on your own terms. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. This is a special episode. It is episode 500 of the Read to Lead podcast launched over 10 years ago, nearly 10 and a half years now. And I thought long and hard about who I wanted to be my guest for episode 500. I've chosen Ray Edwards, author of Read This or Die, Persuading Yourself to a Better Life, for a couple of reasons. One is I have so much respect for Ray, having followed him and his career for the better part of 10 years now. And I also think this book has the ability to truly change your life, unlike just about any other book you might read. This is along the lines of The Last Lecture, uh, Tuesdays with Maury, books like that. It is indeed a challenging book. You might even find it difficult to get through, but that's only because it's going to prompt you to answer some difficult questions, questions that could change your life for the better in ways you never quite imagined. I'll be asking Ray to share about the disease that prompted him to evaluate what he wanted ultimately out of life, why most of us don't ever become fully self-actualized and what to do about it, how to use writing to help you realize a better life, and much, much more. If you're intrigued by what you hear from Ray today, I want to invite you to a Read to Lead listeners-only discussion with Ray about the book this coming Thursday, November the 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Members of the Read to Lead community online are participating in a book club, and this book is our read for this month. But until the end of the year, I'm inviting Read to Lead listeners to these book club discussions, even if you're not yet a member of the Read to Lead community. Again, this discussion with Ray and with Jeff Goins, who Ray partnered with on this book, happens this Thursday, November 9th at 3 p.m. Eastern. If you'd like to participate in that discussion, sure to be a lively one. Make sure you're on my email list. If you're not, go to readtoleadpodcast.com and put your name and email address in the form at the upper right of the page. You'll get notified about how to join us for that meeting on Thursday. Or you could just join the Read to Lead community right now. The first two weeks are free, by the way. To find out more about that, go to jeffbrown.me. Again, the first two weeks are free. You can not only join us for our discussion with Ray and Jeff on Thursday, but also a discussion with me the next week in my November Ask Me Anything session. Again, the address for more on the Read to Lead community online, jeffbrown.me. Ray Edwards has been a leading expert in the art and business of copywriting for almost 40 years. He is the host of The Ray Edwards Show, a popular podcast on business and marketing, and the author of How to Write Copy That Sells, a book we featured way back in the second or third year of the podcast. His new book is called Read This or Die, Persuading Yourself to a Better Life. Well, I am delighted to have this guy back for a second appearance. Actually, technically, it's his 
third, I guess. Ray Edwards first appeared on this show back in episode 119, which was 2016, I think, like three years into the show. He was back a year later when I did uh, an episode featuring my four best interviews of the first four years. That was episode 175. And that episode included Margie Worrell. It included Simon Sinek. It included Seth Godin and this guy, Ray Edwards. So welcome back for, we'll call it two and a half. Thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Always. Let's dive into the to the book, Read This or Die. This is a very personal book for you, uh, Ray, obviously. Share a bit about your experience with the disease that, that serves as the reason that the book exists in the first place. Well, so the disease we're talking about is Parkinson's disease. I was diagnosed in 2011. And I started my journey with Parkinson's by not telling anybody, like many Parkinson's patients do. I kept it secret as much as I could, but people began to notice I had a slight tremor. I walked differently. It eventually became not a choice anymore. I had to tell people what was going on. And so I walked through all the stages you go through when you get a diagnosis that is Parkinson's, for those who don't know, is it's about, first of all, it's about more than just a tremor, more than just shaky hands. Um, what most people know about it, they know through Michael J. Fox which most of what you see in Michael's behavior these days is actually not, not just the disease, it's the side effects of the medication. Mm. Medication itself only works for a little while, and then it begins to cause the rhythmic kind of writhing motions that you see Michael J. Fox have. So I went through denial, went through anger, went through bargaining with God. I mean, the irony, Jeff, is I was, um, I was going through a ministry school in a very charismatic, some would say hyper-charismatic Christian movement mm -hmm. where we were praying for people's healings and we saw people get healed. And even at the time I knew some of this is psychological healing, mm. but some of it, I also know nobody can tell me what my own experience is. I saw people healed of things they should not have been healed of. I know something was happening there that was miraculous. So I, I did not, I did not lose my faith in the miraculous, but I began to lose my faith in the miraculous for me as my disease got worse. I went and had all the famous healing evangelists that I knew pray for me. I knew lots of them. We drove all across the U.S. in our RV. We went to every revival hotspot where all this Pentecostal supernatural healing of disease. And I, I saw so many people who've been healed of cancer and some of some who had been healed of Parkinson's. Mm. I just had all the faith that it was going to happen. And the longer we went into the disease, the, the, the worse it got and the more it became kind of clear to me that maybe it's not going to happen. So how am I going to deal with that? So I began to challenge all my assumptions about positive thinking, about self-help, about my, my faith, my religion. It drove me to a place of questioning everything in my life. And um, things just got continuously worse until it came to a point where I had to decide whether I wanted to even live or not anymore. Mm, wow. Where, where did you land with regard to your, to your faith? I, I know you have experienced healing and there was a back issue a very painful back issue that you were healed from. So, so where did you land with, with the, with the faith question? Um, my, my opinion is uh, I used to say humorously, I'd say my humble, but accurate opinion is that I'd say what my opinion was. Now I simply shortened it to my humble opinion, which is subject to correction is I, I, I'm still a Christian. I still believe in God, the father, the Holy spirit, his son, Jesus Christ, is death, burial, and resurrection for the payment for our sins so that we can live together in union with him in eternity. I still believe those things. I believe I believe them at a much deeper, more visceral level now because 
before I would not, I'm, I'm not saying this for anybody else. So please don't hear me putting this on you if you feel differently, but I, I feel like uh, my faith before was well-intentioned, but shallow. Mm. It had never really been challenged. Some of the things I experienced, and I, I don't say this to, to, to elicit sympathy, but I, I had a major shoulder surgery that was the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life to this day. And uh, I knew I was in trouble when the orthopedist did the surgery said, now the key for you is going to be, you need to remain perfectly still after you have the surgery for about six months. <laughs> I'm like, have you, have you read my chart? Are you looking at me right now? Cause I have Parkinson's at the time I was shaking very badly. Wow. It was very difficult. So it's, it's, it becomes a challenge when you trust God for everything and what, what you're getting back, the feedback you're getting back is you're in immense pain. I went to the emergency room two times after I had that surgery, once with some kind of blood infection, just misery, really wishing I could die. Mm. And I, I had a, I remember one night after the, after the surgery, I, I had to sleep in, in a chair in the living room because I couldn't lie down with the shoulder. When you have rotator cuff surgery, there's like four or five connection points. They were all torn mm. all, all at once. Mm. So it was the most elaborate kind of surgery of that type I could have had. I was taking Oxycontin. I just remember being at such a, such a low point, feeling like God had abandoned me or I, I was being punished somehow. I, I just looked by the table that sat beside my chair and I saw that I had a bottle of Oxycontin, I had a bottle of Xanax, and I had a bottle of Jim Bean. I thought I could just swallow all that and that would take care of my problems. But I realized what it would do to the people in my life. And I couldn't bring myself to do that. And I, I realized I got to turn this around. I got to get myself pointed back in the right direction. And that, that direction pointed me back to God. Mm. So I'm, my faith is more important to me now than it ever has been. I feel it's deeper than it ever has been. And I, I'm sure a lot of people find me frustratingly unwilling to state dogmatically what my beliefs are on certain points that they have. I just know that I love God. I trust God. And that's good enough for me. Mm. Well, who knew that a framework that, that you developed for writing sales letters could be used to help you <laughs> work through this, this process and persuade yourself to change your beliefs into to a better life? I want to dive into some of that framework here in just a minute. Uh, first, I want to talk, though, about this, this, I guess, research that says, I think it was Maslow who first said that only 1% or 2% of us ever fully become self-actualized. Uh, many of us want to change, Ray, but we don't. <laughs> Why is it we don't change in, in your view? I think it's because the pain of changing seems more real to us than the pain of not changing. Mm. And I believe the reason for that is the pain we experience by not making a change in our life usually comes much later. So if I'm eating lots of sugar and chocolate cake and cookies and pies and <laughs> It doesn't hurt me right now. Right now, it feels really good. Um, so there's there's not any pain. If I have to stop eating all that stuff, that feels painful. <laughs> but as we know, later, a few years later, what I'm going to experience is possibly diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's is now being called by many people diabetes type three. Um, so there's there's grim implications for not changing the way we eat, and it's it's not really even super complicated. We know most of us know what to eat. Real food, not a lot of processed sugar. If your grandmother couldn't tell you what it was when she looked at it in its raw state, you probably shouldn't eat it. So the same thing with smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. 
um, things I have done in my lifetime. And I did them because they felt good in the moment, but there's a long-term price to pay. So I, I think when it becomes real to us, when we can see the pain of not making the change become real to us, then we're motivated to change. Mm-hmm. And it's a switch we can flip anytime we want to. We, Dr. Joe Dispenza says, um, most people change when they're forced to by pain and tragedy. Mm-hmm. But what if we thought ahead and did it instead out of a place of conscious choice before those things happen to us? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I do too. I teach a, a course called Note Making Mastery. And, and one of the things I tell students in that course is if you're thinking without writing, you only think you're thinking. And you say, if you want a better life, maybe it's time you start writing. What's so special about the act of, of writing? I love what you just said, because I've said often in the past, writing is the doing part of thinking. <laughs> I love that. So there's something about committing your thoughts to paper or to the screen if you're doing your writing digitally, but I'm going to say paper, pen, and ink is the way I originally learned. And I still do to this day. I write with pen and ink, although it's not as not nearly as uh, legible as it once was, but so so it goes. Uh, there's something about getting your thoughts on paper that you, you have to clarify and justify those thoughts. Mm. You know, in school, we had to write a thesis, and that's essentially a statement we have to defend. And I think that's what writing becomes. Like every day I write down the feelings I'm having about my life in the morning before I set out for my day. It's part of my routine. Mm. And as I'm doing that, I'm asking myself, is that the feeling that I want? Where does that come from? Mm. Why am I feeling that? Is it justified for me to feel that way? I, I have to start defending these things that I've written down to myself. And I say defending, it's not from a posture of being attached, just from a posture of not letting automatic thought patterns that may not serve me show up in my head too often. Dr. Daniel Amen calls them ants, automatic negative thoughts. <laughs> Try to stomp out the ants. I love it. Well, let's dig into uh, this method of yours, one that I've been familiar with for, for some time, and that you, for the first time, turned on yourself, basically. <laughs> the pastor uh, method. Yeah. So, so we don't have necessarily time to go into great detail of each part of the method, but I would like to discuss each part of the method to the extent we can, uh, if that's okay with you. Sure. Uh, the P of the pastor method suggests that, and you were just alluding to this, that we start with what hurts with, with our pain. What do you mean when you say, Ray, that we need to let go of, of the lies that we love? Well, the lies we love are lies like one piece of cake won't hurt me. One bag of Doritos won't, won't kill me. Mm. There's some truth mixed in there, but the, the long-term truth is if you're eating that stuff over time, it probably is going to kill you sooner than you would have died otherwise. Mm. So there's all kinds of comfortable lies we tell ourselves. We, As human beings, we're great at denial. We do things that are not good for us. And we're really good at making up stories about why it's okay that we do that. (laughs) We like to rationalize. And you know what you get when you rationalize? Rational lies. (laughs) Uh, The A is is amplify. And a good copywriter knows, I think, how to turn up the volume on the pain a potential buyer is is feeling, right? Right. Unpack this notion, Ray, that, that people change. And we talked about this a little bit. People change when they have to not when they want to. Maybe you can go more in-depth into that idea or thought. Well, I think it goes down to the basics of our nervous systems. There are plenty of studies, and I've learned how to read scientific studies better than I ever have in my life, 
over the last few years for obvious reasons. There's lots of good studies. When I say good, I mean they're peer-reviewed, they're verified, they're replicated by more than one researcher that demonstrate psychologically our behavior tends to spring from wanting to avoid pain and also to gain pleasure. So to move away from a source of pain or perceived source of pain, there's the key right there, and move toward a perceived source of pleasure. Our higher angels would tell us we should be motivated by love and kindness and feelings of charity and wanting to do good and wanting to see the good in life mm. and not be motivated by things that make us hurt, that are painful or that are fearful. But our biology tells us a different story. We tend to move away from what we think is going to cause us pain faster and more readily than we move toward what we know will cause us pleasure. Because mm. often things that cause us pleasure long-term don't feel so good short-term. Mm. Exercise, for instance. <laughs> For some of us. I hate to run, but I love having ran (laughs) is is the case for me. Um, The S in the pastor framework is for story. Talk about the need to address old stories that are are no longer serving us. Uh, This is a a crucial part of the process. Well, we have these stories we've been telling ourselves all of our lives. Like um, one story I had that I told myself for a long time, it's kind of embarrassing to admit, but I always thought I was the smartest guy in the room. (laughs) And that story gets you into trouble in lots of ways because people think you're an egomaniac Mm. as that's how you come across. It also causes you to dismiss what others have to offer in terms of knowledge, wisdom, and experience, which is a huge mistake. I now try to think of myself as the most ignorant person in the room. Mm -hmm. And the primary driver I want to move my behavior is curiosity. What can I learn from the person that I'm talking to right now? And that makes all the difference. So these old stories that we have, I'm the smartest person in the room, or I'm the dumbest person in the room, mm. or I'm, I'm too short, or I'm, I'm too attractive, so people don't take me seriously, or I'm not attractive at all, yeah. so people don't take me seriously. We have all these stories that drive negative behavior. We have to learn how to disconnect those stories from our actual person and realize they're just, the story of your life can be one of tragedy. I've had this tragic life with all these bad things that have happened, or it can be one of triumph. Which one do you want? Mm. We have an exercise we do in our workshops where we talk to people about write the story of your life in one page and write it in such a way that it's, it's a triumph. Only write the good stuff that happened to you. Mm. And then we tell them when they're done with that exercise, we say, let's do it again. But this time I want you to, everything you wrote has to be true. So then the second part of the exercise is again, nothing but truth, nothing but facts, but write the, the story of your life as if it's a tragedy now. And everybody's able to do both things. When we're finished, the obvious question is, well, which one is true? Well, they both are, but which one do you choose to emphasize? Which one do you choose to let it be the lens of perception of what your life really is about? And the, the bottom line conclusion is the story of your life is not your life necessarily, but it is just your story about your life. And the way you interpret that story tends to affect how you feel about the quality of your life. And it affects deeply the decisions you make going forward. Ray, I found when I when I took the attitude of what can I learn? from these people when I was in a position to teach college kids. I walked away after a semester having felt like I learned more from them than they ever learned <laughs> from me. It's amazing how that works. The the T in the pastor framework uh, is testimony. Uh, and in here, one of your chapters is called Making Yourself Believe Anything. And on the surface, that can sound nefarious at first. <laughs> Unpack this and the idea of, of, of reinforcing new realities. Well, it can sound like a bad thing because it means you're susceptible to believing anything, even if it's not true. Mm. And there's there's a lot of truth to that as we can see. We can all find evidence for that around us. But 
there is an old saying, I want to keep my mind open, but not so open that my brains fall out. <laughs> so my point is, I never want to be in a place where I assume that I know everything about everything and it's all settled. Mm. Uh, I grew up in a culture where we often said, Bible says it, God said it, I believe it, that's it. Well, that's true, except I have to be sure I'm interpreting the words I heard from God correctly, mm. that I read in his book. So even the things we hold most sacred, I think are worthy of us looking at why do we, why do we believe what the Bible says on this subject is what it actually says. Have I investigated that myself? Have I read mm. enough commentaries? Have I done the, the research? Have I read the scripture? So the, I'm, what I'm trying to say is there are boundaries to making yourself believe anything. But having your mind be open enough, I had to go from a place of believing that I believe that the disease I had was a curse to understanding that, is it possible that it could be a blessing? Mm. It made me angry when people said that to me. Every <laughs> once in a while, mm. one of my closer friends would say, well, how have you been blessed by this? Have you thought about that? And I just got angry every time I heard it. Mm. Like, I'll, just, I'll show you blessed. You try <laughs> this out for a while. Yeah. So the ability to stay open to the fact that I don't know everything yet is really important because when you decide you know everything, you decided to stop growing and stop being open to new inputs. It could be could be God himself trying to speak to you about a certain problem you're facing. Yeah, I'm reminded of sections from the book where you talk about the impact of this on your business and the money it was costing you and the debt and, and the near bankruptcy. And it's just a very open, honest, raw read as you're writing this letter to yourself all these years ago, I'm sure the thought that that, was, that letter was going to appear in a book someday was the furthest thing from your mind. I, I, w- I would imagine <laughs> that was, that was a, a big leap to take to go from this very personal raw letter to publicizing. It was the furthest thing from my mind when I started writing the book even. It was only mm-hmm. after we got into the, a draft or two of the manuscript that the idea was suggested we should put the letter in the book and then we should lead with it right up front. We should put the whole thing in the book. Because the letter itself is kind of, could be perceived as kind of harsh. Mm. Some, some have told me, seems like it's not very kind self-talk. <laughs> well, I think it was very loving self-talk, but it's what I needed to hear. Mm. What myself needed to hear mm. in order to get moved to the point of making positive change in my life. And those mm. are ideas that I had not been open to previously. So I needed somebody to look me in the eye and say, look, you know what your motivations are. You know what your beliefs have been so far, how are they working out for you. So now it's time to think about changing it. Mm. Well, speaking of which, the next phase I want to talk about, O for opportunity, is all about calling yourself to action and practicing becoming a new person, right? What, what does that look like when lived out? Maybe you can give me an example. Well, for me, it's the, I, I ended up writing a code of conduct for myself, which is also in the book. And it's just, it's, it's aspirational in a way because I, mm. I read it again recently. I read it fairly frequently. And I don't always live up to every point in that code of conduct. I'm about a good 80 to 90% most of the time. And I consider that success because 100% is not possible. I'm not perfect. And there's only been one perfect person so far, as far as I know. And uh, so I don't want to hold myself to that standard. I want to get as close as I can, but I know I'm never going to get there in this life. But one way in which I had to change the way I was thinking was in thinking about problems. I had come from, and I'm not blaming anybody else for this, this my own messed up theology I had kind of bought into, which was the idea that if I'm a Christian, everything should go great in my life. (laughs) And, you know, in fact, Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have trouble. That was a promise he made to us. 
Mm. So, but take heart because I've overcome the world. So I had to, to learn that the answer to the question, why did God allow this to happen? Why did he allow me to have Parkinson's disease? I don't think he's, I don't think God's the author of evil, but obviously nothing happens in his kingdom that he doesn't allow. And the question for me to ask is, what can I learn from this? Because there's a good friend of mine named Michael. I talk to him every once in a while about my life. And anytime I come to him with a bunch of problems, he'll say, do me a favor, go to the Bible and check and see if Romans 8 verse 28 is still in there. <laughs> and that's the verse that says, he makes all things work for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. I'm like, okay, Michael, point taken. Your friend Michael is a borderline smart aleck, isn't he? <laughs> He's got a little bit of a sense of humor, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the point is, I end up asking myself, if, if God is allowing things in my life, then why? What can I learn from it? How can I benefit from it? How can I grow from it? So I went from thinking that Parkinson's disease was a curse to first articulating the ideas and then actually finding myself believing them to be true, that it's a blessing. It has been a blessing. It's made me more empathetic. It's made me more patient. It's made me more humble. It's made me more open to seeing God at work in my life. In so many ways, it's made me a better person, better human being. It's benefited the people around me that work with me, the people that I live with, like my family and my friends, my community. Have you ever had a thought along the lines of God has allowed this to happen to me because he knows what I'm capable of doing with this. Is that kind of what you're saying in, in, in so many words or am I, am I putting too much of a spin on it? No, you're, you're exactly right. Yes. I, I do. I do believe that without, without question, really, he would not have allowed it to happen if he didn't believe there was a purpose in it happening for me. And that's the key distinction. I don't think things happen to me. I think they happen for me ultimately. Mm-hmm. Even though they may, be, they may be uncomfortable right now, ultimately, I will understand. And that very idea, that very thought, that very belief gives me a kind of peace it's hard to imagine. Mm. That passes all understanding, as, as the Bible yes. says. <laughs> and finally, there's the R, the response to all this. Talk, Ray, about making it stick and, and, and the cost of, of commitment. Well, I think it comes down to it's it's work that's not finished. It's the work that I'm here to do. We're all here to do is to to continue to learn to appreciate what we have and appreciate the beauty of life and the opportunity that we have every moment. You know, Victor Frankl had a huge influence on me. He wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning, which I've read more than once, as many people have. But he shares in that book the idea that life's not worth living if we don't think there's a meaning mm. to our suffering. And so I, not only do I think there's a meaning to our suffering, I believe I have lots of evidence to make me confident. I know that there's purpose behind suffering and it can be redeemed and it can be for the good. It can be better for me, for the people around me. And it makes me appreciate my life. But I have to remind myself of this continuously or I forget. It's so easy in today's hyper-connected social media world. It's so easy to get, to buy into the cultural hypnosis. Things are dark, things are bad, that you want to live fast, die young, leave a handsome corpse, whatever the popular philosophy of the day is. I don't want to be hypnotized into believing things that I don't believe in actuality. Mm. So I have to be careful about what I let into my mind. And I have to be careful about what I intentionally put inside my mind. So things I read, the things I say, I, I have, I'm a big fan of routines and checklists. And on those checklists for me every day are things like take time to stop, to breathe, to pray, to sense God's presence, to be kind to other people. That's what making it stick and maintaining the change means to me Mm. over time. Mm. 
I was going to ask you at the outset, and I, I skipped over it uh, without realizing it, but I'll ask it now. And I'm doing this more often with interviews that I do. I, I look at who the book is dedicated to. Tell me a bit about Robin Helton. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> Robin was, for many years, was my best friend. And we, we had very different lives, very different backgrounds. I met him when I was 16 years old. He was a couple of years older than me. We had many adventures and misadventures. We, he got me in, interested in philosophy, mm. introduced me to the works of Ayn Rand and really uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Those are the books that he was reading. He was sharing with me and we were discussing and we wrestled with those issues about the Bible. And he was, he was more of an atheist than I ever was. I pretended, I pretended to be one for a while, but I didn't have enough faith to stay in that particular <laughs> church. But uh, Robin passed away a few years ago. Mm. We had kind of fallen out of touch. We made such different conclusions about life. We didn't talk for, there's no, there's no acrimony. We weren't angry with one another. We just didn't talk very often. Mm. I discovered he had died. And I know we'd often had the discussion of the, the last great mystery was what happens when you die? It's the, it's the biggest question we can, we can possibly ask. Death defines us whether we want it to or not. As Dan Fogelberg wrote in a song once, he said, death is there to keep us honest. It's the ultimate destination that we all have. And Robert and I often talked about what will it be like in that moment when we step through that gate and we don't really know until it happens. I know in whom I've placed my faith. But I don't know what that will look like because I'm not God, but I'm, I'm certain of one thing. Robin went ahead of me and I'm confident he'll be waiting for me on the other side to tell me what his experience was like and to ask me what mine was. Thank you for asking that question. Oh, most certainly. Well, Ray, what haven't I asked you about? Anything I didn't touch on with regard to the book that you want to make sure people know about or, or walk away with? I think um, the thing I would recommend is go into the book with the expectation that you're going to get, at the very least, an outline of how to write a letter like this to yourself. So if this turns out to be just an interesting or challenging read for you or one you don't even like, then I've missed the mark because the mark I was aiming for was to get you to write yourself a letter. And you can use my structure or you can use your own. I think writing to yourself about what is the what is the big issue that you need to change in your life? Because you know what it is. Well, I think we, my hallucination is we all know what the big problem is. Mm-hmm. We, we're just afraid to address it. Mm-hmm. But if you were going to be outright dead honest with yourself and nobody else is going to read it, and you certainly weren't going to do anything as foolhardy as publish it in a book for people to dissect and <laughs> criticize you for, mm-hmm. would you, what would you say to yourself mm-hmm. to make yourself make the change you know you need to make and do that? And if, something in the book inspires you or motivates you to do that, then I will feel like I've, I've made the investment worth my time and work and yours also. I know I asked you this question seven years ago. I think it was the last time we sat down to talk about your last book, How to Write Copy That Sells. What books have you read recently over the last few years, let's say, that have been the most impactful to you? Okay. I'm not sure you're going to have seen this coming, <laughs> but uh, the first that I would name is The Brothers Karamazov. Mm. by Dostoevsky, which uh, really uh, the reason I read it is because I had tried to read it four or five times and failed every time to get very far into it. (laughs) And it was bothering me. And other people were beginning to, I was hearing more and more people say, this is the greatest novel ever written. And so I decided, well, dadgummit, I'm going to read that book. And I did. And it's certainly one of the greatest novels I've ever read. It's it's a difficult book, but it was rewarding. And um, the irony is it taught me many things my grandparents taught me, mm. which is being a good person is important. It's very hard to be a good person. It's very hard to know if you are a good person or if you're just fooling yourself. 
And it's only through God's grace that we can actually become good people. I've mentioned note-making mastery a couple of times where we walk folks through the process of effectively collecting ideas, organizing those ideas, connecting new ideas to existing ideas, crystallizing those ideas and thoughts into, into things all your own, and then ultimately creating. So collect, connect, crystallize, and create a, a, a way of, of managing your personal knowledge more effectively. I, th- I think most of us understand the concepts of managing to-dos and tasks. I think a lot of us have missed out on effectively managing our knowledge. Yes. And I'd love to know what tips you might have, maybe systems you use, strategies you use for making sure the things that you learn along life's way don't get lost, actually are then taken by you later and maybe reimagined, if you will. Well, first of all, I just found out about a new course I need to take called Note Making Mastery. <laughs> so I'm putting that on my list. Um, I use, I've used for years, I've used something called Evernote, which many people mm-hmm. are probably familiar with. It's still my kind of my main repository for most of my long term notes. Mm-hmm. Short term, I use, currently I'm using Apple Notes. I'm also experimenting some with a little thing called Notion. Mm-hmm. which is it's more than a note-taking app. I'm trying to decide whether it's like the coolest, greatest tool ever, as so many people say, or if it's just too darn complicated. I'm right there with you on that one. <laughs> but uh, I, Apple Notes is my go-to quick capture, mm-hmm. uh, which is funny. I never thought I'd be saying that because it's just a few years ago, it was not a very good app. Yeah. But over time, it's gotten, they've, they've put a lot more work into it. It's gotten better and better. And it's ubiquitous. It's on my phone. It's on my tablets, on my computer. Right. The, the synchronization is instantaneous and that's useful. Yeah. And as I, as I hone those notes down and reword them in, in my own way and make the knowledge my own, the ideas my own, I tend to put those into Evernote and I'll use them later when it's time to oh, write a book, you know? <laughs> well, one of my favorite books in a while is Read This or Die, Persuade Yourself to a Better Life. Ray with our friend Jeff Goins. Ray, uh, this was a treat. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for writing this. Thanks for allowing us to make this the uh, book of the month this month in the book club. And we look forward to seeing you with our book club members later this week. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. There are just seven episodes left in 2023. And I know what authors and books are going to be featured in at least six of them right now. We've got Valerie Cockrell, Manage Like a Mother, Pam Marmon, Speak Up or Stay Stuck, Jason Van Ruler, Get Past Your Past, Brian Evergreen and Autonomous Transformation, Eliza Licht, On Brand, and Steve Chu, The Family First Entrepreneur. All that and more, one more, in fact, on the way in the next few weeks right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Don't forget to check out jeffbrown.me to find out more about the Read to Lead community online. Get all the details, too, about our upcoming discussion Thursday with Ray Edwards and Jeff Goins. Again, that's jeffbrown.me. Well, that does it for another episode. This time, episode 500 of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.